New York is a city of high-rises, and the buildings here keep getting taller and taller as the years go by. Have you seen the 90-story condo and hotel tower that went up on West 57th Street in Manhattan? That and every other skyscraper in the city would never have gotten off the ground if it weren't for one invention, the elevator. Without that technological innovation, buildings would have likely been stunted at around six floors. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In a moment, we'll delve into the history of the elevator with the founder of the Elevator Historical Society in Long Island City, Queens. It goes back about 2,000 years at least. But first, have you heard the one about the alligator in the elevator? Neither did we until we stumbled upon singer, songwriter, educator, and performer Rick Charette. Only his children's song is no joke. It's a lot of fun and still capturing kids' hearts nearly 30 years after he first penned it. Rick is on the phone with us this morning. Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, thanks, George. Really uh, looking forward to it. So you wrote a song called Alligator in the Elevator. Yes, I did. (laughs) What inspired that song? Well, um, it, it's pretty amazing when our son, uh, I've been uh, writing songs ever since I was in, in my teens, and uh, when our young son was two years old, I was holding his hand one day, and we were over at the University of Maine, and we had to go upstairs, and I was trying to save a little bit of time, and uh, without thinking, uh, I asked him to come around the corner and get inside the elevator with me. Well, he freaked out, he got terrified, you know, thinking that I wanted him to go in an alligator, and so... Um, of course, when we saw the elevator, he loved it. But the thought of going inside an alligator, uh, I think, would be terrifying to anybody. But Oh, yes. That's so fantastic, though. So he thought you said, come inside the alligator. That's great. Yeah, yeah so he, uh, he's all grown up now, but he still doesn't mind my telling the story. So how did you build upon the lyrics for the song? Well, I just w- was thinking you know, the, of the different floors that you go up and about this adventure with this friendly alligator. I think when you, when you mention the word alligator, it's kind of like scary as well. You know, so the idea of, of, of having this, this adventure, that we, the, ele, the elevator would go up, you'd go up to different floors, and, and it would be a fun time. There's an alligator in the elevator, I can't believe what I see. There's an alligator in the elevator, and it's making eyes at me. Alligator, please push number one. I'm going up to the first floor with the care to join me for some fun. The song is a, is also available as a children's book, so it was really neat to see the, how the artist envisioned. Um, she had this older lady as the person in uh, you in the elevator with all these kids. So it was a, it turned out really well. A children's book by the same name, I would imagine. Yes, the same name. What a you great know, story! Did you ever expect that your song would inspire a kid's book? Well, so many kids uh, I found use uh, like music as such a uh, a powerful tool to help them learn how to read. And when you illustrate it and have the music, it becomes a you know an additional tool to to build on. So I was really I was really excited to see to see that happen. You know, to see it go full circle like that. And you know, when kids want to learn a song and they have the text in front of them, you, it, it's a it's incredible to see how they put it all together, you know, with the words and the and the picture and and the song. Now you created the song back in 1985. Where have you performed it? Well, uh, my home is in Maine, and uh, that's where I grew up and my roots are. Uh, but uh, I, I travel throughout the U.S. but heavily uh, in the Northeast. 
uh, I, I go down to Long Island quite a bit each year and visit the schools and, and work with kids in the classroom on composing their own songs. And then uh, after composing them, they get to sing, sing them you know, for the whole school usually. It, it, it's pretty neat, some of the songs that they've come up with that, uh, that they've written. So is Alligator in the Elevator still a crowd favorite? Now that one and the the one that that edges alligator in the elevator out is is a, a a tune called I Love Mud. I wish I could have written like a uh, hundred of those songs, but the uh, but those two are um, even in, in my my career now. I'm getting ready to release a a new CD and it'll be like I think my twelfth one. But those two songs from my my second one are the I think the strongest, the ones that people really uh, totally enjoy and. I always want to hear when I'm performing. Rick, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much, George. There's an alligator in the elevator. I can't believe what I see. There's an alligator in the elevator, and it's making eyes at me. Rick Charette is a singer, songwriter, educator, and performer. He's online at rickcharette.com. Charette is spelled C-H-A-R-E-T-T-E. Our next stop this morning leaves us on the floor of elevator history. Patrick Carr is the founder of the Elevator Historical Society. He has a long association with elevators, as I found out during a visit to his museum in Long Island City, Queens. You know, Patrick, I had to climb stairs to get to the elevator museum. That's because the elevator's in the back of the building. There you go. But elevators are your business. Uh, for a long time, since I was 11 years old. Since you were 11 years old, how did you get involved in the elevator business at 11 years old? Uh, by a mistake. My father's helper on a Saturday didn't show up. He was sick. I was a big kid, and my father said, well, you want to come to work? Well, what kid doesn't want to go over with Dad? So I went to work with him that day on a job on West 51st Street. And at the end of a seven or eight hour day, he handed me a five dollar bill. Uh, I was a dime store millionaire at that point. Five bucks to a kid in 1955 was a ton of money. And I decided I liked the elevator business that day, I guess. And I've stayed in it all my life. I went to college, got a uh, bachelor's degree in history and uh, almost a master's in constitutional law. But I never left the elevator business. What did dad do specifically? He was an elevator mechanic. And in those days... To make a few extra dollars, he'd have a side route. He worked for a company during the week, and at night and on the weekends, he'd take care of elevators for a few clients of his own. We had about 30, 40 elevators he took care of. And uh, by the time I was 13, I was working with him constantly, (laughs) nighttimes and weekends, and and loving it. And uh, as I always say, as a butcher's kid learns to cut meat, I learned to fix elevators. So it wound up in my DNA, I guess, the old man always said that I didn't have blood, I had gear oil in my veins. But it's been a great journey, and uh, wiser men than myself have said that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. What would you say you love most about elevators? I guess that, that well, from the technical part, when I worked on them, was the, uh, the challenge of walking in an elevator shutdown, and you're the diagnostician. You're doing a differential diagnosis of a patient that can't speak to you. So it's almost a medical thing if you think about it. It's like a a veterinarian. You have to go in, you have to look, and you have to figure out what the symptoms are and how do you fix it. And I always loved that instant gratification of walking in, elevator shut down, walking out a half hour later with happy people in the lobby 
because now their elevator is running. I also, the history always grabbed me from the first day. You'll see later on the wall my first item collected the day, first day I went to work with my father, 1955. I started collecting from that point on. Collecting what exactly? Anything to do with elevators. I mean, it, the collection itself includes extremely rare items, things that are one or two of a kind. And I'll point out some of those as we walk around. But it also includes trade show giveaways from last year. It includes articles dating back into the late 1700s. It includes articles that were published two months ago. Because in order to collect, you have to curate anything properly. You never stop collecting. So I check eBay every day for elevator collectibles. Um, I have a network of friends. I have a fellow up in Boston uh, who's donated his collection to me, uh, Steve Conley. The National Association of Elevator Safety Authorities moving their office had no room. They donated that. Schindler Elevator Corporation, I'll show you some of the magnificent things they donated. They had purchased Westinghouse, and this was the Westinghouse collection. They elected not to retain it, and fortunately someone at Schindler said, I know who we, what we should do with it. Let's donate it to the Elevator Museum. We're actually not the museum. We're the Elevator Historical Society. Museum is a term that everyone else applies. We use it ourselves, but legally we're not a museum. Who invented the elevator? That depends on how far back in history you want to go. It's, it goes back about 2,000 years at least. In 1967, I was visiting Rome and managed to, in those days, you could go all over the Colosseum, and I managed to see the 13 elevator shafts that were in the Colosseum. They would actually bring Christians up on one side, lions on the other. Uh, they were obviously animal, or we believe they were human powered by slaves. The first thing we would actually consider an elevator was an outgrowth of the steam cranes used on the Thames River. They were used, obviously, to take product off of ships. And someone said, well, I can move stuff in a factory the same way. So they developed steam elevators called Teagles. And they were very seldom used by people because they were inherently dangerous. Single, manila, rope, not a good way to travel. The first elevators that we see coming in are in the 1830s in London. And they didn't call them elevators, they didn't call them lifts. They called them ascending rooms. Lovely ascending name. rooms. An ascending room. Lovely name for it. Then we see in New York in about 1840 on Cherry Street, Henry Waterman is manufacturing elevators. Again, they're primarily or exclusively freight elevators because they, again, were inherently unsafe. And buildings weren't that tall also at that point in time, right? The maximum you would have seen was five stories. But in 1852, Elijah Graves Otis, who founded Otis Elevator Company, or what became Otis Elevator, uh, he invented a safety device, displayed it at the Crystal Palace Exposition, and he would hoist the elevator up, cut the rope, and the safety would engage, and he'd yell out, all safe. And uh, that was the, the beginning of the safety elevator, as we call it. He, in, a couple of years later, he installed his first passenger elevator at a department store on Lower Broadway. That was removed after three or four years. People didn't like it. They didn't want to use it. Of course, all those elevators then were steam-driven. There was no hydraulic, there was no electric power. And steam eventually would be replaced by hydraulics, hydraulics by electric. And the electric elevator is really what permitted the true high-rise elevators. I'm talking about not 20 and 30-story, that could be done hydraulically. But when you get to 50-story and 75, uh, buildings like the Woolworth, 
never would have been able to be built. The municipal building in New York, which I'm working with the mayor's office on a uh, uh, documentary right now, just giving advice to him, not doing the documentary. These buildings were 25, 30, 40, 50, or in the case of the uh, Woolworth, much taller. And we never would have had that without the electric elevator. So that came in the 1880s, and the traction elevator, which allowed the high-rises, came in around 1900, 1905. Have technological advances changed the elevator much since you started working on elevators? Uh, a sea change, literally. Let's go through a couple of basics. Speed, much faster than when I came in in 1955. A fast elevator in 55 would have been possibly 700 feet a minute. Would have probably been the fastest that was out there. Today, we could do 2,000 feet a minute. Okay, now you're talking about almost three times the speed. So in a high-rise building, you're getting there a lot quicker. Technologically, everything has changed. I came into an industry where everything was done with carbon and copper contacts and huge relays and coils and contactors. Today, literally, the amount of control you have is all solid state. It's computerized control. It has a readout that tells the mechanic what the fault is. So if he has an open interlock or a limit switch, it comes up on a screen It says open limit switch. A lot easier than my day. We had to go figure out what it was. Uh, also, we've developed things, an outgrowth of an actual 1933 invention by ABC Elevator, which was called Destination Dispatch. And that you see in the most modern buildings now. You walk in, and if you're a tenant in the building, you swipe your card, and it says go to Elevator 7. If you're a visitor, same thing. You come in, you put your temporary pass in, and it knows you're going to the 46th floor because that's what your pass says. And they know that the quickest elevator to get you to 46 is elevator 5. So you go to elevator 5, there's no buttons inside the car. You can't press a button. That elevator is so smart it already knows where you're going. And elevators now learn, which we didn't have before. What do you mean by that they learn? What they do is, I live in a high-rise here in Long Island City, and the elevator system there because it scans its traffic patterns constantly, it knows that every morning at 8.15, I put in a down direction call, between 8.15 and 8.20. But it also knows all the other calls that are coming in. So if it has the possibility of doing it, it'll position a car near me between 8.15 and 8.20. It's a learning curve, but it only was enabled with the transition of the elevator business from what I would call literally the 18th century to the 21st century, 19th century to the 21st. We made a magnum jump. And a lot of the basics that I knew were just taken out from under me completely because now everything is totally electronic. The mechanic has to be more of a computer expert than he does the old-style mechanics because uh, the diagnosis is now being done for you in a lot of cases. Is it a much safer job than it was? 50 years ago to be an elevator repairman? Oh, I would think so, yes. There's, there's more redundancy built into the systems. And also the major elevator companies and the big, even some of the small local companies, have put in great safety programs to try to prevent the mechanics. Remember, elevators kill about 30 people a year in the United States. The vast majority are elevator workers, not the public. It's an exception when we have something like 285 Madison, where a woman's killed entering an elevator. Right, the elevator shot up and she was crushed, am I right? Yes, and it was human error. Uh, the safety circuits were bypassed by somebody in the machine room, according to the city report. 
And if that's the case, then that was straight human error. What other types of injuries do people suffer in an elevator? Well, the majority of injuries we see are abrupt stops, which will cause compression injuries in the spine. Uh, they can also cause meniscus injuries. Uh, we see trip outs where the elevator is not level. And those can be anything from a bruised toe to a cracked, fractured skull, depending on where you land. And then we see door strikes where the doors hit people. By design, they shouldn't, but any device invented by man can fail under a certain set of circumstances. Um, I've done 103 trials as an expert witness. Yeah, I was going to say, you're an expert witness in trials for elevator accidents. Elevator, escalator, moving walk, anything within my, my purview. And most of the injuries we see, fortunately, are minor. When they're major, they become subject of something I do for a living to support the museum. <laughs> Getting back into the history of the elevator, what was the elevator disease of 1903? It's there on the wall, and it was two doctors from St. Louis who thought that the shaking and jerking of elevators was actually resulting in physical <laughs> symptoms. Uh, I have it in the museum because I just think it's humorous. <laughs> uh, they were not right. We, we have some funny stuff in the museum. Most of it's serious stuff. We have one of two known to exist Otis handouts from 1868. And uh, the handout, if you could see it, you'll see it's only steam-driven or hand-powered elevators. There was no other source of power. And we also have what we believe to be the only Otis Brothers plate dated 1861, which is the year their father died from smallpox. Elijah Grace Otis died very young. He was 43. What can you tell us about the history of the elevator operator? We really don't see them anymore in New York City, with the exception of a freight elevator. Well, no, there's still at least a 1,000 manually operated elevators in the city. Are there really? Oh, yeah. If you go up along Madison, Fifth Avenue, uh, particularly Park Avenue in the older, what they call the Candela buildings, the beautiful... Very expensive buildings. See, I'm not hanging out with the right crowds. That's yeah, the problem. That's your problem. you got, you got to upscale, boy. Uh, um, if you go there, you'll see elevator operators and manually operated cars. Sometimes, I know uh, one of my friends lives at uh, one of the nicer buildings on 5th. They modernize the elevators, but they still have an operator on them. So he presses the button for you. You come in, he goes, hello, Mr. Jones. He presses 5 because he knows that's where you live. That's done more for security than it is for operational. You don't need an elevator operator on a car, obviously. But they've kept them, and you'll find an awful lot of the Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue buildings, they never actually changed the back elevator. They left it manual because they wanted to be able to control the flow of garbage and uh, cleaning people and whatever. Most delivery people were not permitted to use the front elevators in these buildings. You have to go through the side entrance, so you have to have someone there to let them in. You have to have someone to put, take, bring them up to the building. And they want to take you up there, let you drop off your package of food or delivery from the pharmacy, and back on the elevator and take you out. So they're trying to control the flow of who comes into their buildings. So that's the reason you still have a fair number of manually operated elevators. Show me some of the other items that you have here okay. in the quote-unquote museum. Well, we got a lot of good stuff. This is an original order book from Otis Elevator, well, Otis Brothers, from 1870. Uh, it's in the hand of Norbert Otis. We verify that by copies of other things we have. There's a series of plaques here showing basically the expansion of Otis from Yonkers. You see now it says New York, Boston, Philadelphia. New York, Chicago, Rochester. Philadelphia, New York, Chicago. Canada, 
So it's showing the beginnings of the internationalization, or the nationalization first, then the internationalization of Otis. By 1900, they would have agents in about 30 or 40 countries around the world. And they had already set up factories in England. They, they, were, on, they, they were the best managed of all the elevator companies with a combination of very good technology, which they either developed themselves or they bought. If they saw somebody with something better than they had, they just bought them out. This is a great piece right here. What is this? Yeah, this is, a, this is a car switch, like you said about moving the elevator. So we try to keep all this stuff in working condition. These all work. Okay? I don't necessarily restore stuff when I get it. I prefer, if you can see, this is obviously kept in original condition. I could have sent this out, had it cleaned, replayed it. But I want it to look like it looked when it came out of the job. Do you know where this came from? No, or I You didn't. can't trace it? No, I did. It was a gift from somebody. And this is part of the gift from uh, National Association of Elevator Safety Authorities. This includes diverse things. Here's a Lego elevator, <laughs> okay? These are almost impossible to find today. They're over 200 bucks when you do find them. So I was happy to get that. But there's some other great items. This is what's called an angel lock. What does that mean? Well, years ago, and if you, you may remember seeing this, there would be an operator on the car and there would be a rope that he would pull to move the car. And it's called pull rope, obviously. And this device, the rope would go through this. On the rope would be mounted metal balls spaced out for each of the floors in the building. So as he approached the floor he wanted, he clicked that, the ball would hit here and stop the elevator. And he'd start up again, he'd open it, pull on it. I would imagine that would give you a nice bounce. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, these were, basically, these, remember, these were 50, 40 and 50 foot a minute elevators. So you didn't get much, really, of a bounce. I mean, you didn't get the kind of abrupt stop you'd get if you had something like this operating at 500 feet a minute. That would give you a very abrupt stop. This is some, some of the items that came from the Schindler donation. This was an old ABC car switch, clearly dated 1911. And that would be a stand-up car switch versus the cut just attached to the winter wall. And again, it works. Okay. Do you think, Patrick, that the significance of the elevator is lost on most people? Absolutely. One of the things I try to get people to envision, and this you can do on radio, is presumed for a moment that we had no high-rise buildings at all. The maximum height of a building would be six floors. Megalopolis would stretch from south of Washington, D.C. to north of Boston and would end at the Ohio border. If you cut every building above six stories off, then added those as separate buildings. All right, just a building like the, the old World Trade Center, 110 floors. Now divide that by six, and you get an awful lot of buildings, okay? And there would be none of the things that actually we have today without the elevator. The elevator is also a great form of socialization. You think about how many people have met their husband, wife, or significant other because they took the same elevator the same day, two or three times a week, and at one point, the guy turns to a woman and said, oh, I like your new hair. Or he said, that's yeah, a beautiful dress. That starts a conversation. The next conversation is, why don't we have coffee someday? And then who knows where it goes. But there's so much social interaction in an elevator because you see the same people repeatedly in your apartment house, in your office building, because you usually arrive and leave at the same time. With that being said, window. though, it could also be very awkward in an elevator. Well, there's no question that an elevator is an invasion of your personal space especially a crowded one. 
But yeah, it is an invasion of personal space, and there are people who are particularly elevator phobic. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. Patrick Carr is the founder of the Elevator Historical Society in Long Island City, Queens. More information at elevatorhistory.org. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Here's a little elevator music to set the tone for our final elevator-related segment of the day. Stanley Trachtenberg is the author of a children's book called The Elevator Man. He joins us on the phone this morning to talk about it. Stanley, thanks for being here. I'm glad to do it. So you wrote a children's book about an elevator operator, huh? In part. It's, it's really not about the operator. So what's about it about? a young boy who, uh, well, it's a picture book. Picture books are really just graphic novels for children. They're not, they're not really stories. Often they turn out to be no more than captions, for example, uh, which is to say each sentence is an illustration of the same situation. And this deals uh, largely with a young boy who is uh, fascinated by the uniform and by the uh, mechanics of the self-service of the uh, regular uh, elevator, which is to say one which has a controller and a, uh, a lever which operates the machine. It's a story that doesn't conform to the traditional narrative structure. Is this elevator in his building where he lives, the little boy's building? Yes, it is. Was that you as a child, Stanley? Well, I did live uh, in a building with uh, actually two elevators. I grew up in the Bronx. I was in the West Bronx section, which is to say the concourse. Mm -hmm. There were two buildings that really stood out as the old traditional buildings, as opposed to the art modern buildings that came up later in the 40s and early 50s. These two buildings were called the Lewis Morris. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Mm-mm. But if you Google it, you'll see that the Lewis Morris was to buildings what Brooks Brothers was to clothers. And it had a very large population of doctors. The other building was the Lewis Minoff. And that's the building that I lived in. And that had two elevators, one on each wing. I don't really remember what kind of elevators, but I think they were elevators that had operators. Were you enamored with those elevators as a child? I didn't really think about them very much. We lived. My father was a physician, and so we lived on the ground floor, which meant I took the elevators only to visit friends in the building. So then what inspired you many years later to write a children's book titled The Elevator Man? I'm not sure. I did subsequently know someone who lived in a building on Park Avenue and uh, visited frequently. And I think, if anything, that was uh, the immediate impulse of the story. That was a uh, classy building and uh, did have operators. 
Now, the elevator man in your book eventually loses his job, right? Because the elevator is replaced with an automated elevator. No more need for an operator. In a sense, that's correct. But the uh, the young boy, then, uh, since it becomes a uh, self-service operator, a self-service elevator, the young boy becomes the operator by pressing the buttons rather than by using the controls. Of course, a lot of the romance of the story goes out of that. When you use the controls, it becomes uh, a work of art, making sure, for example, if the elevator lands flush on the landing, and you would go up a little bit and down a little bit, and then, of course, the operator would always say, uh, watch your step as you, uh, as you got off to make sure, even though it was flush, that uh, somebody leaving it uh, didn't uh, hurt themselves. Is it a New York City building that's featured in your book, or is it nondescript? No, it is a New York City building, and uh, I think it has some of the atmosphere uh, of New York. Stanley Trachtenberg, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Stanley Trachtenberg is the author of the kids' book, The Elevator Man. Well, we've reached the ground floor of this elevator-themed cityscape. That's all the time we have. For past episodes of the show, you can check out our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also download previous episodes or subscribe to new ones on iTunes. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. 